Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. So when Pastor Rod turned to me a few weeks ago and said, oh, by the way, you're sharing on the 30th without any prior warning. I sat in church that Sunday and I went through my catalogue of sermons that I have in my head with the Father and I said, okay, which one, Lord? And I threw out a few at him. I said, okay, how about worship? Nothing. How about Genesis 1? I have a big kind of, you know, sermon on Genesis 1. Nothing. So I threw out a few titles at him and nothing came back. And then I landed on one particular one, which I'll share in a moment. And he said, yes, that's the one. And then last week, uh, Pastor Ann stole most of my notes. Um, uh, and, and laid a perfect foundation um, for half of what I'm going to speak about today, which is incredible. And she was talking about drawing near to God, and we're going to speak about that. Um, but first, I want to just share a story. Um, some of you know I write a little bit, and a few years ago I wrote a book which had 12 accounts um, of, from the disciples and so I had each disciple the Holy Spirit and I we just started to write um, stories from the Gospels but, but from in like a diary kind of um, perspective so I would have Judas yes that one Judas um, all their names are going out of my head Matthew Philip uh, John stick with the ones that we know uh, and so just you know it's quite incredible just and I don't know how true these personalities are that I've, I've written but I wanted to share one of them, not as a plug for my, my work, but because we're going to land somewhere, hopefully later, which will kind of tie up not only why I sang that song at the beginning, but why this story is, is, is key. And so if, if you want, you can close your eyes, you can just see it in your imagination. Hopefully I've written in a way that uh, would inspire, you can actually you know, visualize what I'm saying. So this is the story of Philip and the title for this little mini story was A Sight to Behold. So this is what he writes in his diary that night. It's official. I hate sea travel. I really do. No matter how many times we cross the Sea of Galilee, I just can't stomach it. I personally don't know why the master doesn't just take Peter, Andrew, and the other sea folk amongst us on these short jaunts. We are only ever gone for a few days at a time, and then it's back on fear back and foot. I really do hate sea travel. Now, you can imagine Peter and Andrew always take the lead when it's time to go by sea. As brothers growing up on the sea, they obviously have a trusted routine that they swear by. The problem is, they force it on the rest of us. We only get it in the end, but I know I'm not the only one who considers himself not cut out for the sailor life. So today, the master asks us to go ahead and cross the sea without him. He wanted some time alone in the mountains to meet and talk with Abba. I've heard him pray a few times. Not the public prayers that he speaks before the crowds. I'm talking about his personal prayers. The ones that only few are privy to hearing. We were so amazed by the sense of unrestricted access and the results. So much so that we asked him to show us. And I've tried it a few times since. Mind-blowing stuff. As usual, the Sea of Galilee encountered a storm as we were en route. I can't remember one time we've crossed that sea in perfect conditions. Never. See, the wind was ferocious, the waves were higher than ever, and Peter and Andrew are, are jumping around, dancing around the ship like kids, eager to meet the challenge. I didn't have that same giddy excitement, so I went below deck and I tried to perk up the spirits of Matthew and Judas, who I figure don't like sea travel as much as I, any more than I do. We did surface, but this was due to us hearing a scream from above. Those that were on deck stood shell-shocked, pointing out across the sea. So our eyes followed their fingers into the distance, and I let out a shriek of my own. At first, I thought it was a demon. Then I looked harder, and it looked like the master. But we had left him behind, so I figured it must be his ghost. Well, that's what I thought until Peter shouted out, and he started to have a conversation with 
well, we're with him. It was the master walking on the water. Even now, hours later, it seems so surreal. See, he's healed the sick, but there have been many healers before. He's preached sermons that make the hairs on your neck want to worship, but there have been many preachers before. But this, this was incredible. This was our, uh, we were in the middle of our own Elijah calling down fire type moment, just simply out of this world. Now, growing up by the sea undoubtedly has made Peter just a bit braver than the rest of us. So he winds up asking for permission to come and join the master on the water. Not only does he ask, but then he gets out of the boat and seemingly just on the strength of the master's invitation, he walks out on the water as well. Another story he can probably bore us with for years, I'm sure. He did appear to slip under the waves at one point, And all we could see was the master reach out his hand to catch Peter and pull him in. They stood there talking for a bit. Please note, the wind and the waves are still full on at this point. Before proceeding to walk back to the boat. And that was it. As soon as he got in, the storm stopped. The mist cleared and we literally had a few minutes to get ready to land. Just like that, it was all over. I feel like I should clarify my opening statement. Remember I said I hate sea travel. I hate conventional sea travel. See, however, if the master can show us how to walk on water the same way he showed us how to, how to pray, I think I might have my own story to tell one day. Philip. Father, we do give you praise and give you glory. We thank you for this incredible opportunity to yeah, paint on our imagination the truths of your scripture, the revelation of your word and your character and your nature that you've hidden in our Bibles. And so we do not take it lightly. We do have an expectation, Father God, and we extend our faith to receive. And for those of us who may be cold, it's quite cold outside. We do also thank you for the comfort of your Holy Spirit who comes like a blanket in due time to comfort us. Um, if it be your will, send fire from heaven to warm us up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just as a side note, if you remember, Philip later on in life was the one that got transported um, in a moment from the Ethiopian eunuch and the chariot and he went bang and he was gone. So when I was writing this, I did find it quite funny that, that he wanted me to write about a man who didn't like travel, who didn't like sea travel, and wanted a different way, a quicker way to get across. And then that's the man that ends up, whoop, I'm gone. So for those of you writing notes or, or for the purpose of the podcast, the, the message, the, the title for this message is Proximity. Okay? We want to talk about proximity. And... In, in short, actually the title I got was Mirror Image. And it's about understanding the blessing of proximity. Okay, so proximity itself um, is nearness and space, time and relationship. Uh, the synonyms for proximity, you have closeness, vicinity, presence, adjacency. Now, when I was at university and I had to find God for myself, what I began to do is, is to study the Bible via threads. And so the Lord would often start me in one place and then we'd go through and I'd find different references throughout the scripture and it would, in my head, in my imagination, it would make a thread. And so when someone says worship, I immediately go, oh, Genesis 22, that's the first mention of worship. And I go all the way through to Matthew 27, verse 50, with Jesus on the cross and the veil in the temple, verse 51. Go into Romans, you talk about Paul and, you know, now offer up your body as a living sacrifice. So all these things, they thread and they become clusters. And proximity is the same. It's the same for me. In 2009, um, the Lord asked me to, to investigate and study intimacy with him that closeness with him, proximity, to be near, to be close. And so, like I said, when Pastor Anne last week said that she was going to talk about drawing near to God, I nearly fell off my chair. If we can put up Genesis 1.26, you may please. 
for those of you that know me know that Genesis 1 has become a, a firm favourite of mine over the past two years or so. So yeah, verse 26, we, we probably know it. God said, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make mankind in our image. After our likeness, let them have complete authority over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the tame beasts, and over all of the earth, and over everything that creeps upon the earth. It's important to note that it was always God's intention to be a God who was close to his creation. He's not a God in the same vein as the false gods of other religions. See, they are content to witness the, like I I put here, they are content to witness the maturation of creation from a distance. But our God desires closeness. For a moment, can we just consider Adam's first moment? Okay, so the father's there, like I said, imagination, just go with me. So the father's there, he's taken dirt, okay, uh, taken a lump of carbon and, and all these different elements, and he's formed it into the image and likeness of himself. And like I said, he doesn't do this from a distance. Now, obviously, as we know, every other um, account of creation, everything else he created was just by a word, and the word went forth. Blah, blah, blah. But this is, this is different. The book of Ephesians tells us that we are his uh, poema in the Greek, uh, which is his handiwork, his masterpiece. And we are literally, in verse 26, we are the finest of his creations because we are the only one made in his image and likeness. Um, To be made in his likeness, to function like. um, And so everything we do is as like the creator. And so he stands there and he's making man. Okay, so he shaped his head, his face, whatever. And then the Bible says that he breathed life into him. Uh, Ray Hughes speaks about it in the sense that the moment that God breathed into Adam, it kick-sided his heart, and there we had rhythm. Boom, 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 boom. So the the first existence, the first uh, thing that man got accustomed to was the sense of rhythm. Because all life begins in that rhythm, the heart beating. And it's almost like the lights came on. You know, so he breathes and his, his heart starts pumping. And also the lungs start working. And so Adam... But what breath is that that he's breathing? It's not just any old breath. This is the breath of God himself. And I can almost imagine the angels, as they're looking at this, going... Really? Oh, it's a bit forward. It's a bit, bit, bit intimate there. And literally, as he opened his eyes, Adam, the first thing he would have seen would have been the face of God. That he, and all he knew in that moment was the face of God. Now, I've said this before, I'll probably say it every time I preach because I'm a big fan of this. In theology, they will teach you about the law of first mention. For those who don't know what that is, that is, any time something is mentioned for the first time in Scripture, it usually is encompassed or it has an attribute which stays with it throughout um, the whole of, of Scripture. So, like I said, worship, Genesis 22, Abraham, uh, sacrifice, and Isaac. Worship and sacrifice go hand in hand from that point on. Um, and so, the first time we see of man, the first instance that man is placed anywhere in, in the narrative is directly in front of the face of God. That's the type of God that we have. That's the Father we serve. He's not one to be distant. He's not one to be to be to live far from you. But it's so much so that our humanity, I believe, is fully maximized when it is lived out in close proximity to the Father. Has anyone... Anyone here a gardener? A keen gardener, would you say? Sheila? Any others? Not me. Um, my, my old pastor used to say I've got piano hands. Um, I think he was trying to say that I, I was a bit soft. Um, yeah, it's, it's a long story behind that. Yeah, I'm not really a gardener. Um, funny enough, we've really just recently got our garden done. Um, a friend of mine came and did it for us. But have you heard the phrase rewilding? You know what rewilding is? Anyone? Rewilding? Okay, I'll explain. Rewilding, the Rewilding Britain website 
says that rewilding is restoring natural processes and healthy functioning ecosystems on a large scale to the point where nature can take care of itself. So what they do in the process of rewilding is they, they would take domesticated animals or whatever the case would be and they would throw them back into the wild. But this is not a managed conservation project. We've seen the adverts where they're releasing into the wild. This is literally that. They're out. And they let these animals rewild themselves. And the process of rewilding isn't actually wrong. They're actually restoring their default settings. They're actually going back to, you know, on your phone, restore factory settings. How they came brand, you know, brand new out of the box. And we have a place for that in the scripture. Can you go to Exodus 13, 21, please? So this is the next step in the thread. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. This is from the account in the book of Exodus where now the, the slaves had been released, uh, the, the children of Israel who were slaves in Egypt, they would now been released into the wilderness. I find it interesting that in the wilderness, that was the place where God decided, okay, after 400 years of not hearing my voice, after 400 years of not knowing who I was, because remember Jacob and, and the Lord, they walked in, in close proximity, Abraham, Isaac, even, even Joseph. But now you had this, this nation who had lived in captivity and grown accustomed to the whips of, the, of their, their earthly masters that it's safe to say they probably didn't always know how to recognize or to live by the voice of their father. But that is the default setting. Remember Adam, the first time we see a human being, he, he exists by cl being close and seen and living in front of the face of God. And so now you have this generation of, of Israelites who they know the stories, but they don't know the storyteller. Okay, they, they know of the miracles, but... It's only now when Moses shows up and does his 12, um, and the, the 12 plagues that they become a bit accustomed now, okay, this God is actually real. So how does he decide to rewild them? He decides that in the middle of their, their, their company, he would lead them with a pillar of cloud by day um, and a pillar of fire by night so that they may be close. See, the thing is, the wilderness is often portrayed as a place of negativity. But it is used in the Bible as a place of jealous pursuit. I submit to you that the wilderness is the place where our radically intimate garden settings are enhanced. This is important because God is so loving and so protective of you that he will not risk you being devoured by the secular environments in which we live. And so the flame that is ignited and tended to in the wilderness is the same flame that rips through the darkness that covers the earth and showcases his glory to a generation that doesn't realize it's seeking him. See, because I grew up in church. Uh, you know, you hear about the wilderness and it's like, you know, it took them 40 years and it's just a place of strife. And, you know, uh, we talk about the promised land. We talk about the promised land. And, and even if you look at it from, uh, from Christian or Christendom and, and the way we've done it in our music, we speak about the sweet by and by and crossing over a lot. But sometimes we miss the blessing of the wilderness. And what first revealed this to me was Matthew 4. Uh, we don't have to go there. But Matthew 4 verse 1. So Jesus has just been baptized. I think it's Matthew 4. Uh, Jesus has just been baptized by John. And, you know, the heavens opens up and there's a voice saying, yeah, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Bible says, and the spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness. And for the first time when I read that years ago, I went, but I thought the wilderness was a bad place. You know, you're just like, wilderness, bad, promised land, good. <laughs> I was like, I, I thought we're not supposed to be out there. <laughs> I thought that's not where we want to be. But the reality is, the wilderness is the place of, like I said, jealous pursuit. And it's the place where we are rewilded. And so, I'll show you how. Think, think about it. I'm a slave, right? So I'm, I'm a slave working for, for, you know, in Egypt. 
and all I know is hardship and toil and repetitive action. All I know is repetition. Do you think that the slaves who left Egypt would have been able to walk around Jericho seven times? Because if you ask a slave to walk around Jericho seven times, they see it as work. If you ask a son and daughter to walk around Jericho seven times, they see it as trust. And what God did in those 40 years was that he rewilded the children of Israel so much so that the slaves who left Egypt, who would have seen it as, that's just work, now walked in as sons and daughters. Because remember the Bible says a generation came up behind them who didn't know Egypt. And God was able to teach them by this pillar of of fire and this, this cloud. He was able to teach them trust. You know, the, the fact that every single day there was manna on the floor that they could, they could eat. And that he sent quail when they needed it. He, even when they moaned and, and griped, he was able to, to stand there and, and give them what they needed. And so the slaves who would have seen it as work were now sons who saw it as trust. So when he says, repeat this, go around, I'll let you know what's happening next. Thank you. That's day one. Day two silence that sounds like a slave master and to, to anyone else you think oh i've got to i've got to walk around with no sense of ending no sense of result in silence isn't that what they would have said in egypt keep working keep working don't talk don't talk but to a son let's trust go with me to galatians 4 1 we're just going to back this up in scripture real quick Yeah, so we're going to read down to verse 7. So now what I mean is that as long as the heir is a child and underage, he does not differ from a slave, although he is a master of all the estate. But he is under guardians and administrators or trustees until the date fixed by his father. So we, Jewish Christians also, when we were minors, were kept like slaves under the rules of the Hebrew ritual and subject to the elementary teachings of a system of external observations and regulations. Verse 4. But when the proper time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born subject to the regulations of the law, to purchase the freedom of, to ransom and to redeem, to atone for those who were subject to the law, that we might be adopted and have sonship conferred upon us and be recognized as God's sons. And because you really are his sons, God has sent the Holy Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, bondservant, but a son. And if a son, then it follows that you are an heir by the aid of God through Christ. And so these Israelites had lived for 400 years with the promise of Canaan and the promised land. But in order to qualify, to be able to really receive promise and they had to transition from the mindset of a slave who lives with a distant God who I cry out to remember God said to Moses I've heard the cry of my people they had to transition from a slave who has a distant God who I want and rail to to now a son who literally the Bible speaks about Moses he spoke with God face to face they were rewilded they were rewilded can we go to John eight thirty two, please? Very simple scripture. You probably heard it before, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That word there, no. Um, I can't remember who I heard preach this first, but I studied it out, and, and it's incredible. The word there, no, is the Greek word ginosko. Um, G-I-N-O-S-C-K-O, I believe. Um, <laughs> if you have a good concordance at the back of your Bible, you've probably got it already. Um, but yeah, ginosko, and it's that word to know. What it means is to have experience of, to, to know by experience. So it's not head knowledge. This is not, I'm in Egypt and I know I have a God. This is no, I have seen him in a day take me from slavery to sonship. 
I've seen him take me from having nothing to having the wealth of Egypt transferred into my, into my pockets. This is the knowing. Right? And this is the walk that God wants us to have with him. Not that you just know me just because you can quote a few scriptures. And that was me growing up. You know, because of those times spent reading my mom's Bible, I, I could quote scripture. And when I got to university and God started speaking to me about intimacy and proximity and being close back in 2009, he showed me it wasn't good enough just to know the scripture, but to know via experience. And so, I'll be honest, there were moments where there wasn't no money. And I literally had to now know Jehovah Jireh. <laughs> I mean, like, dude, you got to come through for me tomorrow. Because... Hey, it's only so far that rice cakes can go. <laughs> Boy, it's only so far that that pasta can go. But I had to, I had to really, seriously, I had to, I had to really find them as Jehovah Jireh. But and it couldn't be the God, you know, the God of Abraham, the God of the God of Michael and Karen. It couldn't be the God of Mum and Dad. This is my God. So, so now when I hear a song of about Him being a provider, even if I just hear one line. I have reference points, multiple reference points. I have, I have stories upon stories I can tell you of encounters of, of with his provision when I know that I know that I know. I always think about it um, in the sense that I, I work in a very academic environment at the school I work at. Some of the most brilliant minds, both young and, and you know, in, the, in the faculty. And some of them, you know, they have their arguments. And if you listen to them, you can be beguiled. Like, their arguments of disproving God or why they are not religious, and they, they go for it for hours. But I know that I know. You can, like, talk, talk for an hour. But have you seen someone you can't hear, and in a moment you can hear? Prove that to me. The ball's in your court, atheist. The ball's now in your court, agnostic. You tell me how this man who came in here on crutches is now walking out without me. If you can prove that to me, then we can have a conversation. Because I know. And this is what Philip and Peter and Matthew, this is what they were living every day. They knew. So the Pharisees who had a form of of relationship with God and and even the, the common folk who knew of God, they now came and heard Jesus preach. And he would preach about Abba. Preach about father. Some of them would mock him and say, oh, what do you mean father? You're not even you know, 30 years old. Or What do you mean you were there with Abraham? Or they would say, aren't you the son of Joseph? Isn't that your brothers and sisters in the back? But Jesus knew. Think about how he prayed. Jesus prayed. Okay, let's, let's stop. Let's just think about how we pray. Let's be honest. We pray still... There's still that kind of, I'm walking in to meet with you. And actually, to be honest, this is what we want to hopefully land in later, where we actually don't have that. I'm walking in, I'm walking in, I'm walking in. Jesus prayed face to face, wherever he was. You know, when, um, when he fed the 5,000, the Bible just says that you know, the, the guy brought up his lunchbox, and then God, Jesus just went, <laughs> Father, and, you know, I was here. Lazarus, uh, was it John 11, is it? <clears throat> when, and, you know, Jesus is there, and the Bible talks about he wept. If you actually study that out, it wasn't that he was just crying, but he was groaning. You know the Romans 8, the groaning prayers? So he, because the next sentence says, Father, I know you've heard my prayer. And I always used to read that and be like, but you were crying. So where was the praying? So I thought it's one of these mystical moments where, you know, there was just a connection and John didn't get to write it down in, in the book. But no, he groaned. Romans 8, you know, the groanings that only the spirit can utter. That was the weeping that it speaks about. And then he posed himself and says, Father, I know you've heard my prayer. But for, for the sake of those watching, Lazarus, come forth. That was the significance of, of relationship and encounter that he walked in. So much so that there was no barrier in his prayer life. He just knew that he was the son of the father. That's why he had the boldness to say when Mary came looking for him, 
did you not know I'd be in my father's house? Imagine being Joseph at that moment. Ah, yes, I know. I remember. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you are. Um, You know, and the Bible talks about Mary would ponder these things and store them in her heart. You know, it's no surprise that she, the one that pondered on the words of Jesus is the one that was there at the end. Anyway, that's a whole other message. So, it's, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It's not just any old truth. It's the truth that you know that sets you free. It's the truth that you have experience of. Okay, until I met him as Jehovah Jireh, it was just a nice Hebrew phrase. Or Jehovah Makadesh, Jehovah Tzitzikimu, all the other ones that there are. But now I know. And I can go back to the points in the Bible where I found him as to be my provider. I found him to be my healer. I found him to be the one who sanctifies or the one who protects, the one who comforts. Okay? And it's that truth that sets me free. It's the one that I have experience of having, the Bible, if you actually look at it, Janosko, have, having lived life with, having walked life with. Okay? That's the knowing that it speaks of. And this is where we go from just affiliation to relationship. Where we're going from being just a network of people who have a similar faith to now being a family. And this is the life of a disciple. See, as a nation, the Jewish nation were affiliated to the God of their fathers. And the disciples now were developing a relationship with him. The Jews established a society with religious fervor at its core. But the disciples were now thrown into the reality of being part of his family. And they did this by living in continual encounter. Continuous. Every day was a new story. Every day. They'd heard him preach. They'd seen him heal. But now he's walking on water. He walked on water yesterday. He's back preaching. Now he's feeding 5,000 with just a lunchbox. Okay. Imagine their diaries. Imagine their conversations after he'd gone to sleep. And they would go, yo, <laughs> did you see the guy in the back? Yo, I'm, I'm from South London. We get excited. I'm just, you guys are a bit too reserved. I get really excited when I think about these things. I'll be like, yo, did you see the, hey, you know, we get so excited you can't talk. <laughs> like, he's healing this and he's healing that. We've had healers before. They had healers. They had prophets. They had all these things. They had rabbis. They, they had them in, in the temple. They'd meet every often and talk about nothing. But, but now, this was a different kind. And the significance of that encounter was so much so that he could do a miracle, give them some fish, and then say, come follow me. And they would leave the miracle. They'd leave the sign to follow the wonder. This is the significance of the man that we follow. That even in the miracle working, because the thing is, when I grew up, I thought the miracles were the high point of, of Christ, Christianity. You know, you got to, I want to see someone healed, and I want to see this, and I want to see that. And you contend for all these things. That's great. But there's more than that. There must be, because Peter left the miracle to follow the man. So what is it about this man, Jesus, who was so attractive, who was so um, captivating, and just that one word? Sometimes it was a a miracle that he did it with, other times it was a word of knowledge. You know, like he said to Nathaniel, he said, I saw you sitting under the tree, and he said something about how, you know, he was one of the most studious people in all of Israel. My man packed up his books. I'm out. Yeah, you got me. You got me on that one. And they followed him for three years. This wasn't affiliation. This, this wasn't just, here's my turtle doves, here's this, here's this, bless you, thank you, I'll come back next year. This was, I want to be with you every single day. When you wake up, I wake up. When you go to sleep, then it's okay for me to go to sleep. Can we talk through the night? Jesus, we, we heard you praying the other day and then, there's something different about the way you pray. Teach us how to pray. And so what we call the Lord's Prayer, we, we got it wrong, it's actually the disciples' prayer. 
because he would never talk about forgive me my sins because he had no sins. So we know it's the, it's the disciples prayer and he said, okay, here's your template. Our Father. Just those two words would have messed up every religious mindset that they had going on. But they could relate to it because they'd seen it and they now knew it and having experienced it, they now wanted it. See, encounter by default it releases you into a relationship based on a deep knowing and a continual revealing of his nature and name. You then become the man that is not easily swayed by the opinions of others. You then become the woman who is steadfast in pursuit of purity and power. Um, when I was at university, again, I, I, I read a book called Good Morning Holy Spirit. And never forget, as I read the first few pages, this is before he even gets into the spiritual stuff. This is just telling his story about him growing up. But because I had heard about what this book had done for so many people over the years, uh, my mum would tell me about the book because she read it when she was younger. I'd heard about it. For the first time in my life, my spirit began to get excited. Remember where I was? I was, I was at my house in Birmingham and, and I, was, I had the book there and I'm just reading and I felt this quake. I'd never felt that before. I was like, whoa. I'm only on page three. Paragraph two. We're not getting into the good stuff yet. We're just talking about you grew up here and you did this. And, but I was like quaking. Is anyone here at the moment who has that quake now? Okay, I just wanted to just do something because God told me that there'd be someone here with it. Um, that very same quake. There is a gift that the Father has, his gift of hunger. If you notice, hunger is actually a sign of health. When you're ill, you lose your appetite. You lose your hunger. So the very fact that you are hungry shows that you are healthy and functioning. It's because the baby is crying that we know that the baby is healthy. If the baby didn't cry for food or didn't desire food, you'd be worried. So the loss of appetite indicates some sort of sickness, but the presence of appetite is proof that you're in a very healthy state. And so I just want to just pray and just release that very same gift of hunger. Father, even now, those whose spirits are quaking as, as I've begun to speak, Father, I do just release the permanent gift of hunger that it will disturb them in the morning in the afternoon in the evening that they would feast upon your word father in the same manner that you led me to many different threads and different banqueting tables of of scripture and revelation and even after I'd fed I was never truly satisfied I always wanted more and so father by the power of your spirit I ask that you place a seal on that gift, on on that hunger, on that quake in their spirits right now, Father, that they may desire you. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Prepare to be disturbed. That's what I want to say about that. Um, The example of Peter. uh, I'm not not going to go into all the different scriptures, but let's just think about Peter. We're all kind of familiar with his story. Um, By all accounts, he's a bit of a loud mouth. Maybe had anger issues. Um, I'm a learning support assistant, so probably he would have been in my office quite a few times for lashing out in class. You know, hopefully not with his sword every time. Um, but yeah, Peter, you know, a, a turbulent character, quite suited to the Sea of Galilee, we'd say. Um, with all the storms. Maybe that's where he gets it from, you know, to fight fire with fire. Um, but let's think about He's just seen Jesus be arrested. Okay. And the Bible says, talk about John following Jesus. And there's evidence that Peter followed him. And Peter's there, it's cold, just like it is now. And he's warming his hands by the fire. And the Bible talks about three opportunities he had, uh, three conversations he had, I think one was with a servant girl and some other people around the fire. 
where they questioned him. They questioned him about his proximity. How close are you to Jesus? That's really what those questions were. Because they said, are you not one of his disciples that follows him around every day? They also, I think one account says that they said, but you speak like him. So you must be. So he's challenged here on his nearness to God, to the Father, to Jesus. He's challenged on his proximity. How close are you? Three times he denies it. No, I'm not one of them. That's not me. I know I speak like that, but that, that's not me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that close to Jesus. I'm not that close to him. And in my mind's eye, I imagine that Jesus, because the Bible talks about when the rooster crowed and Peter didn't realize that he had done what Jesus said he was going to do by, by the time um, you hear it crow, you're going to... Um, and have denied me three times. When he realized, oh my gosh, I've just done it. The Bible talks about that Jesus was in the same courtyard and he looked at him. But it's not the look that I'm concerned with. It's not even Peter's denial of being close and denial of proximity. It's Jesus' response to that moment. In response to that moment, he let himself be battered and bruised, whipped to within an inch of his death. For me, it's, it's a moment I'm never able to shake the gravity of. That him knowing that there, were, um, there was a man, or maybe people, maybe he saw some of us who have maybe denied him at different points. And he said, okay, my response to that is the cross. My response to your drawing back, or my response to you not feeling confident enough to say, yes, I'm one of his. I live close to him. If you actually look, look at it, one of the first um, times we see Peter, it's in Luke 5. And the Bible talks about Jesus preaching on the Sea of Galilee. And then he gets into Peter's boat and preaches from the boat. And then they have to push the boat out. And then Peter turns around and, and you know, Jesus turns around to Peter and says, you know, have you been you know, fishing? And he's like, yeah, we've been fishing. Didn't catch anything. Cast your net on the other side. Okay. Peter does it. Brings up the fish. The fish that he couldn't catch before. And the Bible says, at that moment, Peter said, get away from me. And he drew back. So we'd already seen Peter do that before. That in response to Jesus, he draws back. So he was almost going to type. In response to Jesus, and he's been questioned, how close are you to him? Do you know that guy? Do you know him? Are you one of those miracle workers or miracle followers or whatever? Were you one of the two by two? Were you one of the twelve? You speak like him, you even dress like him you have joy when you shouldn't have joy so are you you must be a christian right let's bring it let's bring it home why are you not stressed did you not hear what the boss said like we've got to do all this work by monday why are you not stressed what are you doing this weekend what's your weekend plans yeah just with the family on friday and uh my son's got football on saturday yeah see you on work on monday yeah That was me. For years, I just, I would, yeah, weekend, yeah. If they asked me what I did on Sunday, I'd tell them where I was. But just like Peter, when I'm questioning how close are you, do you are you one of the people that go like, every week? Oh, yeah, you know, like, you know my mom and dad, you know, they're raised me. I'm born and raised in church. It's just what we do. You're denying. You're not being assertive about how close you are to him. And his response to that is, okay, let me go die. And in Matthew 27, verse 50, it talks about that moment when he died. And in verse 51, it says, at that moment, 
The rocks cried out, the ground shook, and the veil in the temple tore in two. I'm not really concerned about the rocks crying out, though that's quite interesting to hear. The ground shaking, we have earthquakes. But it's the veil in the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. Father, explain to me the significance of that. From this point on, me and you can be close. See, you might have denied, you might have denied your proximity to me, David. I won't deny my proximity to you. I won't won't deny it. I'm not going to pull away as you pulled away. If anything, I'm going to come closer. How many years have you not been in church? It's fine. I'm here. How many times have you mocked me with your friends? They're cracking jokes about, yeah, them Christians, man. Yeah, they they believe this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here. I'm closer because I'm all about proximity. And your humanity and your human experience will only ever be maximized if you live face to face with me. And if you're going to pull back, I'm going to have to draw close. It doesn't matter how long I'm going to have to chase you. I'll chase you from Genesis all the way to Revelation and back. If I have to meet you in the Gospels, I will meet you there. Wherever you are, I'll be there. And so David Wright said, even if I make my bed in the gates of hell, I just can't get away from you. This is David, the adulterer, the murderer, the cheat, the shepherd, the king, the man after God's own heart. And because of proximity, because of that closeness that David had, God was able to change the narrative and say, yes, you might have been known as an adulterer and a murderer, but now I will call you a man after my own heart. So much that I'll give you such an elevated place in my presence that I will nickname my son after you. So Jesus, God in the flesh, carried the nickname Son of David. What does that mean? Son of the name David, it means loved by God. Son of the one loved by God. Son of the one who, yes, despite everything he did, twists and turns, how many times he messed up, he always came back. When his son died as as a result of the whole uh, Bathsheba situation, David gathers himself together and runs into the presence of God. His servants go, are you crazy? Your son's just died. Why are you here? Shouldn't you be out there weeping? He said, when he was alive, I cried for him. But now he's gone, I'm back here face to face. Back here face to face. And so, Peter, he's denied him three times. And Jesus says, okay, you want to do that? Okay, cool. Look at this. And the significance of Jesus' act was so much so that 50 days later, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, the first man to speak up about this newfound intimacy, this newfound proximity that the God who was once distant now lives on the inside of me, the first one to speak up, Peter. And they uttered the greatest intro to any sermon. I love it. We are not drunk. Acts 2, I think it is. We are not drunk. I mean, imagine if we started every sermon with that. Maybe the question is why we don't start every sermon. Anyway, let's not go there. (laughs) He was so fully possessed by the Holy Spirit and so now taking advantage of this closeness, he said, we are not drunk. But what you see here today is what the prophet Joel spoke about. What did the prophet Joel speak about? The prophet Joel didn't actually speak about tongues of fire he didn't but such was the encounter that Peter was having that he was able to realize that the written word had now become the living word because sometimes we get so fixated on the the details so where's my sons prophesying and the the hearts of the fathers and all that kind of where's all that stuff that Joel spoke about no actually this is it poured out on all flesh but there's only there's only there's only 12 or 70 of you in there. No, but this is it. This is all flesh. And out of the power and authority that that encounter was releasing, he was able to now set in motion the New Testament church. And I think it's in the next chapter. He's on his way into Jerusalem. He sees a man lying by the beautiful gate. And a man who'd been lying there for many years 
which implies that Jesus himself had walked past this man and hadn't healed him for whatever reason. And I asked God, why did you not? And I don't think I have a definitive answer, but one of the things that I know of God is that everything's for a purpose. And if you remember, Jesus has said, the things I do, you're going to do. Even greater, you're going to do. Could it be that in his sense of humor, he said, I'm going to leave one for you by the beautiful gate. I hear all the rest of I'm just going to leave one here. This is, by the way, this is not scripture. This is my idea, imagination. Just go with me, okay? Don't worry, you're talking about four creatures and stuff. <laughs> he said that. No. <clears throat> but could it be just in his wicked sense of humor, not wicked, in his righteous sense of humor, that he just said, here's one. Because Peter is going to walk up. And that which I didn't do, he will do. As proof that what I spoke about, that you, under the power of my spirit, will now be able to do things on my level and even above. Because he's not insecure. He's actually okay with you doing that. And so Peter sees him and the man says, you know, um, basically, can I have some money? And Peter says, silver and gold have I not. What I do have is proximity. What I do have is closeness. I know him so well he lives on the inside of me. And we have been speaking for the past 10 days or whatever, however long that, that gap is between Pentecost and that situation. We know each other so well that such as I have, I can actually now release because... Hmm, am I saying this wrong? An orphan would be scared to release because they think they wouldn't have any left. But a son knows I can give and I'm still. And he had been so radically transformed by this, this, this encounter at Pentecost that he was now able to say, such as I have, I give to you. The same spirit that overshadows me and lives on the inside of me, I release. It's interesting that he used those words, such as I have. Because really, you can fill that in with anything. The wisdom I have, I give to you. The healing power I have, I give to you. The confidence I have, I give to you. The assurance I have, I give to you. He didn't think twice about it. This wasn't the Peter who was by the fire who said, oh, no, I'm not one of his. I'm not like that. This was Peter who said, I know you asked me for money, but let's bypass that. Let me deal with what you really need. That's healing. Who else was to do that? Jesus. The amount of times in the scripture they'd ask him a question, he'd go, yeah, but, and he'd get to the point. Almost to the point you think he's rude. But Jesus, they ask you about, I know, but here's what they actually really were asking me. It's almost like you can put into the scripture, Peter, knowing the thoughts and intentions of this man's heart, said, such as I have, I give to you. That's the point. If Peter had given him um, a shekel, he would have been able to yeah he'll still be there now <laughs> you know but what he gave him was the power to walk because Peter knew the power to walk would be the power to work if I give you the power to walk which is what you really want so I've actually answered your question I've given you money it'll be in a month's time when you get your paycheck but I've opened the door for you because of my proximity Now, Peter had been identified <coughs> and ridiculed and questioned on the basis of proximity, which he subsequently denied. For he knew that to be close to Jesus would ultimately place him under the same threat of death. But he'd clearly forgotten the truth that Jesus had spoken not many hours before. We go to John 15, verse 18 to 20. This is what Jesus spoke to him on the same day. I'm going to wrap up in a minute. John 15, 18 to 20. If the world hates you, this is Jesus in his final address to his disciples. Look how he ends it. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you belong to the world, the world will treat you with affection and will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, no longer one with it, but I have chosen to select you out of the world, the world hates and detests you. Remember that I told you. A servant is not greater than his master, is not superior to him. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. There's a semicolon here. If they kept my word, okay, can we just go back to if they kept my word and obeyed my teachings, they will keep also keep and obey yours. Which side of the promise do you live on? Will you deny him because of the threat of persecution? Or would you boldly proclaim him because you know if I could just catch one person's ear, if the example could just go to one more person, if I could be a testimony just to one more person, they will follow. They will follow. And that's what proximity is all about. That's what the rewilding process is all about. It's so much so that when I look out now, I see 50 to 100 people who look just like Jesus. Because it is befitting of you that you should look like and function like and be made in the image of the Father. And so, last week, when um, Pastor Anne was preaching, even before that, during the worship, I felt two things in my spirit, kind of from the same family tree, unfortunately. And the Lord reminded me of this today. Guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. This week, okay, yeah, so this is my final story, and then um, we're done. So on Sunday, God said to me, can you up your prayer level this week? I said, every day. Okay. <clears throat> right, okay. <laughs> right, I've got this on, I've got that, I've got basketball, I've got this in the morning. Got okay, cool, I'm going to do it. I set my alarm. I set my alarm in church. When he tells you. Because I know if I left it to 11 o'clock that night, maybe not. So I set my alarm. I said, right, cool. Monday morning, Tuesday. And I spent every every morning just spent some time with him in different ways of you know, reading the word and praying and sleeping in his presence. Um, which is another another trick that he's been showing me. I would wake up, go downstairs, he'd say, go back to bed. What? He said, sleep here. And then, he would, then I'd have my music playing. I'd wake up half an hour later. Then he'd say, this is what I've been teaching you in your sleep. And so I got to Tuesday and there's, something was forming within my spirit. And I got to a Friday and it finally made sense. Because I landed in Romans 4. And that's the story of Abraham. And his, his, the reality of righteousness in Abraham. And on Tuesday he said to me, I deal with you according to your righteousness about this on Tuesday <clears throat> and I was like okay so in my head I, I said it back to him I said you deal with me according to my righteousness and not according to my sin he said no I didn't say that last bit that wasn't me that's you I deal with you according to my righteousness full stop and I'm there going but what about the, all those and the despites and the but remember no I deal with you so when I'm in Romans 4 and I hear about Abraham, he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, not on the basis of the circumcision. Okay, I'll give you a short synopsis if I can. It's not because of the circumcision, because it was credited to him before that so that he may be the father of us who are not circumcised and also the father of those who are circumcised. And then it goes on to about how David said, bless is the man to whom God doesn't even hold his sins against him. Imagine David is writing there. He must have known how blessed you can be when God doesn't hold your sin against you. He goes back to the Abraham story. He talks about how he hoped against hope. You know, seeing that his own body was dead, that he believed in, basically, he hoped in hope, as it were, and he stood in faith and did not waver, giving glory to God, even though his own body was dead. Even though Sarah was 90 years old, he still believed in the promise. And he believed, and that faith was enough to be credited to him as righteousness. You are right with me. You are justified. I think it ends with, it was said that it was credited to him for his sake, for his sake, and also for our sakes. And that really stuck with me, 
Friday morning when I realized that for my sake, it was written in the word that because of my belief in God, I have right standing. What does that offer up for me? It offers what he before to us, but that I now boldly can go before the throne of grace. In the Amplified, it's like, at that point, there was mercy for my failures. So all guilt and shame has to go. Guilt and shame exists on the other side of the full stop. He deals with me. He's close to me. He's near to me on the basis of the righteousness of God, which has been given to me in the same way my wife gave me this jumper when I was cold. It's here. Take it. There you go. That's for you. And in the same way it's provided me comfort right now, it's the same way the righteousness of God will provide you comfort every, every single day. When you feel like you can't be close to him, when you're ready to deny him, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. You know what? Yeah, I did go to church. You should come as well. You know what? Oh, oh, your dad's got cancer. Okay. No, 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 no. Your dad's got cancer. Do you mind if I pray for him? I know you don't believe, but I do. And such as I have, I have to give. The, the promise is too good for me to keep to myself. You know when you go to a good restaurant? You go to a good restaurant. You tell people about it. I do recommend 100 Bordeaux Street. Denise and I went there last night. It's in Soho. Very nice. Um, but yeah, you, you tell people about it. You're like, hey, I'm really excited, but hey, you should check out the, even the bread. Check out the risotto or whatever it is. Right, you ladies, you find a nice jacket in your favorite in your favorite store. You tell your friends. Like, yeah, you seen the jacket in Zara? Hey, sale! When there's a sale on, you're telling people. And when there's a miracle working God that you live with every single day, what are you, what are we doing? Let's tell people about the proximity and the closeness we live to the God who can take nation of slaves, turn them into a nation of sons, reset their factory settings, give them a job, and they say, yes, we trust you. We don't see you as a slave master, we see you as father. And because of that, we now go to work. Let's stand. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let's just enjoy the moment. Let's just say laugh for a moment. Just pause and calmly think his closeness to us and how close he is he's literally here thank you father thank you father you didn't wait for me to draw nigh unto you me all the way. I'm not even going to glorify my own efforts. You guys have listened to someone who in all honesty has ran from God many times. I ran from the calling. I ran from my gift to preach and to to read and to, to I'd read the scripture and things would come alive and I'd be like but why me? Now, for the past eight weeks, Nate here on guitar has been going through a very, very similar extended encounter. And so I'm going to ask him to play. And as he plays, I know that the same freedom that he has now walked in for eight weeks, the same that I've began to 
feel and embrace since December 23rd, 2017, like you heard me talk about last time, will be transferred. Now, you might want to come out to the front, you might want to sing, you might want to pray, you might want to whatever. If you want me to pray with you, you can do that. That's fine. But specifically those who may have felt burdened by guilt and shame. Maybe it's something that happened in your past. Maybe it's something that happened yesterday. And as a result, you feel like I can't come close. But you are the righteousness of God. You are the righteousness of God. Because of that blood. enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 